0: Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michael Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. Canadian politics coverage over the last few weeks has explicitly centered on what's going on in the Liberal Party. But today, we're going to look at coverage of the right in Canada, the very far right.
1: The term alt-right has gained a lot of traction in the last few years, but it's not exactly clear which groups fall under that umbrella. Generally, alt-right refers to groups with ideology that's often racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, and anti-Semitic. These groups are often rooted in white supremacy, or as they might call it, white nationalism. In mid-February, a truck convoy, United We Roll,
0: held a demonstration in Ottawa. First off, I want to mention that we're not suggesting that United We Roll is an alt-right movement. Ostensibly, this was a pro-pipeline protest, where energy and oil workers demonstrated their frustration with the Canadian government's
1: energy policy. That said, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment mixed in there as well. Over the two-day protest, and for days leading up to it, they got a ton of coverage, especially on CBC. Many reporters challenged the protesters, asking them to back up their often anti-immigrant statements with facts. That said, this coverage got us thinking. To what extent do reporters covering ideological groups allow those groups to define themselves? On February 9th, journalist Bashir
0: Mohammed sent out a tweet asking, are there any non-white reporters in Canada covering the far right, alt-right, white supremacists, etc.? He went on to explain, from what I could tell, Omar Mosle was one of the first journalists in Canada to do a deep dive into the yellow vests and their xenophobic roots. Other journalists and pundits seem
1: to shy away from this early on in their movement. We'll hear from Bashir later on. But first, last year, Dagmawi Dejené wrote a feature for the ROJ titled Covering the New Hate. In her feature, she talked to Canadian reporters who covered the far right. Today, Dagmawi joins us along with Koslan Kathira Malanathan, a fourth year Ryerson journalism student who covers the far right rallies. We'll hear from them in a moment.
0: With me in studio today, I have de Dejene. Hello. And Kosalan Kathira Malanathan. Hi there. Thank you both so much for being with us today.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: So you're here covering this uh beat the alt-right from different perspectives kosalan you've been covering the alt-right for some time in your own reporting and doug you found this topic interesting and uh wrote about it for your primary project uh for the RRJ last year yes can you each tell me a little bit about what brought you to the beat
3: basically we we were assigned uh each a large project we had to come up with a topic that we felt um passionate enough about to um write a large story on. This was, I remember it was the summer of um, the events at Charlottesville, and that was what sparked my interest in the beginning. I just remember seeing all the news coverage and seeing the way kind of that this this group of people were being allowed to define themselves, and I found that to be quite a weird thing for for you know, the media and the journalists who were covering this to just allow it to happen. Kostlin, can you tell me a bit about uh, how you got onto this beat?
2: Uh, yeah, it, I came at it from a photographer's point of view. Uh, I was always into photography. I did a lot of street photography in Toronto. And then one day, I don't know if it was on Facebook or somewhere, I just saw an event pop up that there was going to be a nationalist or a alt-right rally in Toronto. And It shocked me because, like, I had heard about these things happening in the States, but never here in Canada. Uh, So my mind just went, like, I have to go see this. I have to go see what's going on. Uh, So I picked up my camera and went uh, and just documented everything I saw. And that went on for a year. Uh, These protests would sporadically pop up in Toronto at Nathan Phillips Square. Uh, And then one day I just started live tweeting what happened. And uh, I just started to realize that this is something that A lot a few people talked about in the beginning, but it slowly started to taper off and like halfway through the year in Toronto, like no one was covering these events. So I just took it upon myself to start tweeting about it. Uh, It was just me and a few other journalists, uh, mainly independents who were there uh, covering these things. So I decided to take it on to just tweet about it and see just inform people of what was going on in our own city.
0: Why do you think it wasn't being covered that much?
2: It sort of became routine almost, I think. Uh, I remember like the first two I was there, The Vice was there, CTV, uh, CBC. They were all there. They were covering it. It was in the middle of the summer. So uh, it was kind of like that perfect environment for people to cover. Uh, But then after like the fourth protest, it just became run-of-the-mill. It was the same thing. Uh, And I think people just kind of realized that it's old news uh, and they – it wasn't there was a more uh, pressing things to cover, I think. Can
0: you talk a little bit about uh, the kind of things that you were hearing and seeing at those protests?
2: Yeah, it it varies. Uh, usually there's a central theme around these protests. So one of the biggest protests that was planned and one that actually regained kind of news coverage was the fact that they were planning to do a protest on the one year anniversary of Charlottesville. Uh, and that kind of like reinvigorated everyone because uh, of what had happened in Charlottesville, people were kind of really pissed off, uh, so pissed off that the protest didn't actually end up happening, like uh, the alt-right, quote-unquote, uh, didn't show up, and it was just the counter-protesters that showed up. Uh, but frequently at these events, there are two big themes that I hear. Uh, the first is there is a very clear anti-Islam, anti-Muslim sentiment that is very loud and so almost like the central theme of these protests. And the second is there's an anti-liberal, anti-Trudeau theme that comes up every now and then, uh, but these are the these are the two consistent things I've seen kind of linking all these protests together.
0: I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a journalist in these kind of spaces. I don't know if you've read these pieces specifically by Sarah Haggi and Sachi Cole, um, who about a year apart each covered a rally hosted by the Rebel, um, the Rebel being a very far right. Uh, media organization in Canada. And they both wrote about uh, how uncomfortable they felt as people of color in those spaces. So I'm wondering, Doug Mowit, maybe based on what you heard interviewing people in Coastland, maybe based on your experiences, can you talk a little bit about some of the safety concerns in covering uh, alt-right spaces?
3: I mean, I personally, um, thankfully, was never in um, any of those spaces myself. And surprisingly enough, most of the people I interviewed um, who were, were white, um, which I think is telling because it is much easier to be in that space if you're white. Um, But I know, uh, especially one, uh, one journalist, his name, Evan Belgord, um, he, he told me these, these protests could get quite violent. And he was, you know, he looks wise could fit into that crowd, but they knew him by face and they knew that he was a journalist and they knew um, the kind of stuff that he had written about them. And so he was almost a target and he would show up to these uh, protests with like a helmet on and and, like gear just to like make sure he was safe. Um, And I think they pursued legal action against him, which I don't think went anywhere. But all in all, I, like it is quite a can be quite a violent and dangerous atmosphere.
2: Uh, yeah, I actually know Evan as well. I've met yeah. him at these protests, uh, and he was one of the few people who kind of like showed me this crazy world of reporting on the alt-right. It's like when you're talking about space, being at those events physically, you see the space divided up because there's the alt-right, quote unquote, uh, and then in between them and the counter-protesters who are there to kind of like challenge them there's just a line of police officers uh and over the years just watching the police presence just kind of slowly evolve from just being a simple line of police officers to police officers and fencing to police officers and riot gear and like horses and all this crazy stuff it's just been getting more and more uh intense for that fight for space uh so luckily like the police are very kind of diligent with that And they don't allow people to cross over or they try not to. So they kind of minimize the conflict. Uh, But that also means as a reporter, I've tried to like uh, on the one brave day, try and go into the alt-right space to kind of see up close and personal. Because usually I'm on the sidelines. Police won't let me pass into that space. Uh, But that being said, uh, the entire atmosphere is one of paranoia. So even the counter protesters don't like welcome me. They look. If they see a camera, they see somebody who's not aligned with them, they treat you with suspicion. So uh, just being in that space as a journalist, as an independent journalist, you are kind of alone almost because everybody kind of is questioning your motives uh, and questioning why you're there. Uh, so it can be a little frightening. And uh, on the physical side of things, yeah, like when there's a clash, if you're in the wrong space at the wrong time, you could get uh, caught into it.
0: So what about reporters that are kind of more on the side of the alt-right. Like what about reporters for the rebel media? Like what have you seen there?
2: So from what I've seen is like, uh, I've seen one or two examples of them kind of coming or trying to get into that space. Uh, There's a phenomenon where if you're not there early enough to be, if you're part of the alt-right and you're not there early enough to kind of arrive via the police escort, uh, you're in for a lot of trouble because now you have to go through the counter-protesters to join your buddies uh, and the counter protesters will pick up on this and they're going to they're going to like ha- make it difficult for you. Uh, and I remember once I uh, I believe it was a reporter from the rebel who tried to kind of approach and they were just shut down immediately. People were shoving him uh, people I like a bottle of water at him. Uh, so, yeah, journalists on that side do get a. Uh, Heckled, for a lack of a better word.
0: So the the alt-right beat, the landscape, I think as many people have observed, including you, Dagmar White, in Mm -hmm. your feature, uh, is largely uh, made up of white reporters. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, simply because it's safer and because of access, I think. Um, As a white reporter, you have more access to these groups because they're not suspicious of you right from the get-go. They can't look at you and say, oh, you know, you're probably going to write something bad about me. Um, so I think that's largely why. And and maybe a little bit because, you know, reporters of color, you know, you are putting yourself at a bit of a risk um, and sometimes it's, you have to think about that risk and if it's worth it to you.
2: Yeah, Definitely the safety aspect i definitely echo that uh because once you are a person of color it does kind of put a target on you uh and just kind of recalling from a personal anecdote uh, i was covering a protest that happened outside uh the israeli consulate uh and once again they were kind of divided this time by uh bloor street so the pro-palestine pro uh Palestine group they were situated on one side of the road and the pro-Israeli group were situated on the other side and I would just cross the street to take photos of both uh and then an individual on the pro-Israeli side kind of took notice of me taking a photo of him and then he just came at me and he kind of like I told him I'm an independent reporter I'm not reporting for anyone but he didn't believe me partially because of my skin tone and I had a beard so he assumed that I was uh part of a certain like he, I'm assuming he assumed I was Muslim which I'm not I was just uh, there as an independent reporter and the situation got even more terrifying when a couple police officers kind of came in to defuse the situation and they told me to delete the photo which I knew like that was my right it was a public space I could take that photo but just to kind of defuse the situation I did and then immediately afterwards the police officer said just so you know in the future you don't have to delete the photo but uh, it was it was a weird situation but Yeah. uh, yeah because of My skin color uh, and because I was close to their side, I feel like I was picked on by this individual and the police in their effort to defuse the situation just wanted me to, like, let it go, which I ended up doing. Uh, And yeah, even more recently, I've just kind of taken a break from covering these protests. Uh, Few have happened in the past month that I haven't gone to because on top of the physical threat, like the physical threat against you, there is a mental toll. Uh, of being a person of color and just seeing these events kind of get worse and worse and the dialogue get more hateful uh, and just seeing no improvement in that uh, and then suddenly becoming a target as well. It just drains your soul a little bit. So uh, I've just kind of taken a step back to let things happen on their own. And mm-hmm. then I still follow the events. Yeah. Uh, I still tweet about them from a little bit of a distance. Uh But, yeah, sometimes you do need to take that break from these scenes because it is so taxing.
0: So, okay, so this is good to clarify. It wasn't a specifically alt-right protest, but there were farther right, extreme right factions within that protest. So moving on, what do you think that the experience of whiteness brings to the reporting process that might uh, be missing in the coverage of the
3: alt-right? I think the advantage of being a white reporter— is being able to ask the tough questions and not, you know, not being seen as a threat, um, which, as I wrote in my story, I don't think was being done enough. You know, when you are covering these these groups, and there's so many of them, and they all want to define themselves differently, um, but really at the heart of it, they all they all, you know, have the same message, which is white supremacy. So I think being white in those spaces and having access to those people means that you have the responsibility um, as a journalist to expose the truth behind these groups and the truth to what they believe um, instead of just reporting what they say they believe um, and what they say they're all about. Um, So I think that that is the true advantage of being a, a white reporter um, and I don't think that advantage has been used enough. And I think white reporters should be trying harder. Do you think that there's a certain amount of
0: unconscious bias that goes into this reporting that perhaps um, gets in the
3: way of getting to the heart of the, the issue? I, I think there might be some unconscious bias. Um, we've seen in, in culture generally, people of color have been judged quite harshly for their actions, uh, whereas white people with the same actions don't usually get the same treatment. If if there were a black extremist group or, you know, if there were, like, you know, of course, if there were, like, a, a Muslim extremist group, they would right away be called terrorists. But, you know, we, we never call white people terrorists, even when they are. So I think that that unconscious bias is is a big part of when when white reporters go out and do this do this work in this field. So I, I think, in a way, we really do need, we need more um, reporters of color to try and expand into this beat. But, you know, it is a risk, and it's if they're willing to take the risk. So finally, before we wrap up,
0: uh, Dagma White, in your feature, you quote, journalist Nora Loretto, who Mm -hmm. talks about the problem with alt-right coverage being done by journalists who are primarily white. You quote her saying, when it is white journalists writing these stories, she says, the media either sensationalizes the event or trivializes it. So um, can you both uh, speak a little bit to that dichotomy between either sensationalizing uh, an alt-right space or trivializing it?
2: I can definitely see that because... Initially, I kind of fell into that when I first learned that there was an alt-right presence in Toronto. I thought it was like, oh, my God, this is a big deal. People should know about it. Uh, but then as I started to learn about the regularity of it, uh, their, their presence long before they started doing these public protests, uh, I realized that this is something a lot more nuanced. This isn't just some, something reactionary happening to what's happening in the United States. This is a Canadian homegrown problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, And because of that, I kind of have learned to kind of temper my reporting and just trying to figure out the facts uh, and kind of explain the intricacies. Uh, But at the same time, uh, one of the big problems is, and you actually uh, mentioned it earlier, is that people tend to, quote, like call these guys as one big monolith. But the reality is that there are a lot of individual groups, some more prone to violence, uh, some with more hateful rhetoric, each trying to stand out as their own thing. Uh, And the alt-right is kind of just these small groups trying to fight for that space. So there needs to be more of an in-depth look at the alt-right. That's why I don't like using the word alt-right. It kind of pairs them all into like this one big monster when the fact is that there are a bunch of small uh, entities. Uh, So that's something we really need to look at and look at the different groups and what they stand for. Uh, So we need to dismantle sort of this myth that the alt-right is one big monster.
3: Yeah, and I think as well... The media needs to be aware of uh, how how we are covering them when it's not to do with, with rallies. Um, I think it was uh, one of one of my interview subjects. Um, I think it was Mac Mac Lamoureux, Um He told me that he read the story in Montreal, which was, oh, community group Sons of Odin, which are not a community group, um, go around and help. I think it was like shovel snow or something, and so like stories like that don't do don't do anything for anyone. <laughs> there's really there's no point. Um, and if you are gonna write a story like that, you have to research like who are these guys? Who are the sons of Odin? Um, what do they believe in? And why why do you think they might be going around in communities and helping out? Like there is an ulterior motive. So I think we do need to be aware of how we are framing these ideas and, and these groups because readers sometimes just read one story. They don't they don't read all the stories. Um, so each story has a responsibility and each story needs to make the facts as, as openly visible as possible. Dagmawit and Kosalan, thank you both so much for joining me
0: today. This has been great. I was very glad to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having us. So with me on the phone right now from Edmonton, Alberta, is freelance writer Bashir Mohammed. Bashir, thanks so much for joining us today. Yes,
4: thanks for having me.
0: So last month you, uh, on February 9th, I believe, you sent out a tweet asking if there are any non-white reporters in Canada covering the far right, so this includes alt-right, white supremacists, etc. What made you start thinking about that?
4: Yeah, uh, it was mostly just about how the issue is covered here. Uh, I guess the reason why I ask is because you know, somebody who is a direct target of these groups or somebody who's affected by what these groups want or, I guess, don't want, um, I feel like they'd add a much more viable perspective. And, like, when you look at the Canadian media landscape as a whole, it is not very diverse. So I was curious if a whether or not this is different. And um, I guess I also kind of wanted to start discussion about this and just make people more aware that this is an issue um and the response is interesting um so for example at Edmonton, we do have a metro reporter who is uh not white and he was actually one of the first to really look into the yellow fest movement and really push them on you know some of their like for example they're really cast as like being you know about energy energy jobs, he was the one who really pushed them about their stances on immigration and all that, for example. And I honestly think that if he wasn't the one reporting it, then it either would have been too late before somebody like went deep into that or um, or much more likely that part of the movement would have been minimized. And when we saw this, like I remember I was driving across Alberta when this was happening, uh, the convoy.
0: Right, the United We Roll Convoy.
4: Yeah, and the movement was, like, purely cast, like, for energy and jobs and all that stuff. And it was interesting because, like, it wasn't until, like, the second day of driving where they mentioned how it was controversial, but they didn't mention, like, why it was controversial, for example, and it was very much in passing. So that was really interesting, just looking at that coverage. Mm-hmm. But going back to the point, I really don't think... That movement, you know, the movement, United re would have had a, a critical bend applied to it if it wasn't for Omar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the name of the
0: reporter. Right, is it Omar Mosla that you're talking about?
4: Yeah. Okay.
0: What What kind of blind spots do you think uh, white reporters have that get in the way of being as critical?
4: I guess the main thing is like seeing, automatically seeing stuff like both sides, because like I know in journalism, like you're taught to be. To like have a certain lens when you go about doing things, like not try to bring any biases or what have you. But the problem with that is, like, if that's adhered to uncritically, then it gets to a point where we're seeing, you know, the soldiers of Odin, the Air, the Aryan Nation, the KKK. We're seeing their perspectives as worthy of broadcasting or worthy of debate. Uh, for example, I remember, so I guess. This isn't, like, directly related to the far right, but it it gets into other issues, too. Like, for example, when we talk about trans issues, like, I know there's that whole case where they had... uh, It was Barbara Kay on CBC. She was on a panel, and she was, like, saying nonsense about trans issues, and CBC actually later uh, acknowledged that maybe she wasn't the best person, but for the value of the day, that was one reason why they had her on. So I think it's very easy for... People to fall into that trap, and more so, easy if it is um, if it is a white journalist. So, and like the the reason why I say this is because, like, let's say somebody is trans, for example, um, and someone starts like spewing off things that are not true or just off base. It it matters to them much more because it is their being that's like being attacked, and that transfers over to somebody who's black or an immigrant, and someone's viewing anti-immigrant stuff. It makes you more aware that what they're saying may not necessarily be true, and allows you to push back and ask questions that um, are able to better integrate or uh, interrogate why somebody holds that view. So I guess to clarify, very shortly, if these views are not challenged, they're just kind of accepted. Right. And it's easy to do that if you think it's an acceptable point of debate. But if you're someone who comes from these perspectives, you think of better questions to ask. It's not necessarily telling someone that they're wrong and hanging up, but it's staying on the line and just really kind of exposing why that view is not a legitimate thing that should be debated. And it also gets into... Uh, editorial decisions about um, what's published, what quotes are included, um, who to interview, for example. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, people like Faith Goldie, Gavin McKinnon, Jordan Peterson get, you know, these major audiences, and a lot of it is because they sneak past that first line of defense was just supposed to be the editor.
0: The kind of issue you're bringing up almost makes me think of um, coverage of climate change, even like, uh, like I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, when there's this um, desire to present the other side in, in the name of balance, if that makes any sense. Even when we can clearly see that the other side, like, there's so much more evidence on one side. So it's in some ways irresponsible to present the other side as, as truthful.
4: Yeah, no, 100%. Like, uh, there's this really interesting antidote uh, about, the, like, the whole climate change discussion, which is really interesting. And it was, um, like, I think it's 97 or, like, high 90% of scientists, you know, agree that this is a problem, and it is a an man-made effect. And then somebody was saying, instead of having one person for and one person again, just have 97 against three. And it, like, right. it, it shows you, you know, what the actual consensus is. yeah, And it does extend to this too because you are seeing a reintroduction of things that have been debunked. Like, for example, um, like IQ. For example, like race and IQ. Like that's becoming very mainstream. And actually, um, it was a Margaret Wendt article, and in it she talked about how the bell curve is one of, like, the criticism it got was unjust. And it's like kind of something in passing. And I remember somebody filed a complaint to like the National Media Council, or I forget what their formal title is, But somebody filed a complaint to them, and they basically said uh, the purpose of the opinion piece was to talk about ideas, and uh, they basically did not rebuke her, even though the stuff in the book has been largely debunked by um, you know people who work in the issue, but just. In general, how that line of thinking has been used by figures to insinuate that the problems facing uh, Black people Indigenous people are due to IQ versus environmental issues. So that's just one other example, too. That's similar to, I guess, the climate uh, discussion that happens and how there's that need, perceived need to
0: show both sides. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bashir. This has been great talking to you. All right. Now for our favorite segment, pull quotes. Lydia, what's your pull quote?
1: My pull quote for today is from Jeffrey Dvorkin, who wrote an interesting opinion piece for the Toronto Star. The article is titled, Is the SNC-Lavalin Affair a Failure of Governance or a Failure of Journalism? In the article, he bullet points many different issues with the media coverage of the investigation. My favorite is when he outlines how journalists will be accused of racial discrimination by pointing out Minister Wilson-Raybould's indigenous background. He says, In this intersectional age, Minister Wilson-Raybould seemed to embody all of the qualities of someone unfairly treated by the white male political culture. She is indigenous, a woman, and a Westerner. But pointing out any of those aspects might risk branding a reporter as a racist, a sexist, or a Laurentian elitist. This is a really bad take on the issue, and it makes me wonder where we draw the line between editorializing and inflating an illogical argument. Well, thank you very much, Lydia. Thank you, Michal. What's your pull quote?
0: I found a story that deals pretty directly with what we're talking about today. Michael Buchert, a PhD student at Carleton University, wrote a blog post. Did Doug Ford consult any students for his For the Students plan? This post is up on Medium. Now, he's being sued for $150,000 for defamation by one of the people he named in the story for suggesting that that person holds alt-right ideological views. He's uh, now conducting a fundraiser for his legal fees, and my pull quote actually comes from his GoFundMe page. He said, The individual suing me has publicly claimed to be one of the only students in the province to be consulted by Ontario Premier Doug Ford on sweeping changes to student fees, a policy which will have the effect of defunding most campus activities. The issue of public policy was the focus of the blog in question. This lawsuit is a clear intimidation attempt designed to silence myself and anyone else who criticizes his actions. It is a clear example of an attack on free speech, It is also an attempt to evade responsibility for his own free association and promotion of extremist figures. So I think that this case brings up a really interesting question. Often we hear uh, talk about free speech defenders coming from the, the moderate and far right, especially on places like Twitter. So this is a case where someone's actual freedom of speech is being impinged on through a lawsuit, which is actually not something that we often see when you kind of hear this uh, argument coming from the other side. But I think that they're, they're really not showing up in this case. Um, and I think it's because it's criticism of the far right. And uh, it, I think it exposes an interesting double standard in what we talk about when we talk about uh, infringing people's free speech. And I also think it, it really illustrates what we'll need to think about when
1: covering the far right going forward. Thanks, Mikhail. And that's our show. Poll Quotes is produced by Michael Stein and by me, Lydia Oberha. Thanks to Dagmawit Dejené, Kosalan
0: Kathira Malanathan, and Bashir Mohamed for joining us today. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata.
1: If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. Have a friend who's into Canadian journalism? Tell them about poll quotes. They'll thank you.
0: We promise. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy And me at Michal Stein too. Our spring conference, All Shook Up, Inspired Insights from an Industry in Crisis, is coming up on March 19th. We've got links to tickets in our show notes. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Polkwoods.